Hello and welcome back to the Perpetual Outsider podcast for Revelation of the Daleks. My name is John Bensalia. Hello and welcome again. And we are going to gear up the Blu-ray. <laughs> well, in my case, the DVD. Um, and I am going to count us in in five, four, three, two, one. Actually, add extra five seconds. Here we go. Yeah, I can't count. It's just my DVD player is quite slow. <laughs> Final chance to hear these wonderful, this wonderful Peter Howell title music. Because in, in a way, it's Revelation of a Daleks Part 2 is the end of an era in some ways, I think. Because you've got, you know, this is the last time we hear Peter Howell music. It's the last time that we get the traditional, their mix of traditional film and interior video, because everything from now on will be filmed on outside broadcast. It'll all be on videotape. Pretty much the last time that we get a radiophonic workshop school. They would have Malcolm Clark, I think, in Terror of the Vervoids the following season, but you certainly don't get any more Roger Lim or Peter Howe, Paddy Queensland, or uh, Jonathan Gibbs. None of that lot. So, um, yeah, this is kind of like the end of an era, I suppose. Maybe um, maybe after the hiatus, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, maybe it was kind of like, you know, the J&T wanted a new broom, just wanted a kind of a new look for the, for the show. Poor old Perry thinks the Doctor's dead. Apparently the original cliffhanger, it wasn't going to be a white up, but there was going to be, it was going to end with blood coming out from under the stone. Which I'm not really quite sure would have worked. I mean, I don't really know how you would get the blood from there anyway. Um, because when the Doctor lifts up the uh, the bogus statue, uh, which which isn't real, of course, uh, <laughs> are you some kind of weirdo? <laughs> which he is. Um, yeah, as as you can see, we've got the Doctor's cloak. If you look carefully, is kind of covered in fake blood, or I, I don't know, probably knowing Davos, it's real blood. Um, but I'm not really quite sure where how that would have worked. I mean, where would you have got the, where would you have, you know, um, put the blood? I don't know. I mean, it, it would have been a great kind of grand guignol horror kind of cliffhanger. But um, in dramatic terms, I don't really think it makes much sense. I don't think, it, you know, probably there was uh, too much on the line anyway for, for it to be too violent. I think it probably would have been too violent an image for kids, I think. So the, the white hat was a great choice. <laughs> oh, he's, he's great, Clive Swift as, as Joe Bell. You know, re really good, uh, really good performance. He's, uh, I think, I think this is, I think it's his brother David Swift, which was in, um, Drop the Dead Donkey. I think he was he was originally penciled in to play Count Federico in the Mask of Mandragora, but he um, he was replaced at the last minute. I don't know why actually he's replaced by John Lorimore, who, who gave a great performance anyway. So the Doctor and Perry finally make it to video. This whole thing about you know video and film. Well, I was brought up on that, you know, um, so it doesn't bother me. I, I mean, it might kind of jar with 
Monday viewers who are used to everything being on film. But back then, that was what you got. You know, I mean, there's that classic Monty Python sketch where, you know, things are, you know, either on film or on video. But it, it, it doesn't bother me at all, really. Wonderful designs. Really wonderful designs. It, it, it doesn't look like a show because it's such a lazy hack journalist cliche to say, oh, Doctor Who had wobbly, you know, wobbly walls and you know, cardboard set designs. You don't get the impression from this at all. I mean, this looks like a lot of money has actually been spent on it. Yeah, maybe maybe to modernise it might, again, it might look primitive, but I think it looks really high budget. Every, everything about it looks high budget. You know, whether that's, you know, Grey Marvel's stylish direction, I, I, I don't know. Penelope Lee is the voice of the computer here. I don't, I don't know much about it. I think she, I've got a feeling she was in Doomwatch. I think she was in, the, in Tomorrow the Rat. And I've got a feeling she plays the, um, the victim who gets eaten by rats at the end. I'm not sure. I think I saw her in a Miss Marple. I think she was in that. I think she was in uh, The Moving Finger playing a rather kind of downtrodden maid, I think. <laughs> Perry's face, uh, you know, actually both a Perry and the Doctor's face. Uh, Tassenbeaker's uh, spiel, uh, you know, a sales pitch. They're thinking this sales pitch is not very good. <laughs> and it is, you know, it, it goes back to what I was saying last episode about the commercialism. And here you've got, you know, it's like you see on um, TV, you know, like now with, you know, the DJ advert coming up. Um, so much of TV adverts, especially during daytime, when you're a freelance journalist and, you know, you work like I do, I, I do tend to have the telly on in the background as kind of like, um, it's a really stupid thing, I know, but I kind of work to it, you know, say an episode of one programme, and then I do, you know, I type out certain few words. Um, but with daytime TV, there's a lot of like... Um, you know, cremation adverts and funeral adverts. And it's exactly like what you get here. Maybe maybe not quite as dark as here, but uh, but it's it's certainly playing on that kind of, you know, sort of, you know, the funeral business as, you know, as as that, as a business. It's, um, you know, a thing to make lots of money out of. So it's kind of a neat play on that, really. I do like the way Roger Lim's music suddenly it, it makes like the guitar when he unflips that gun, he suddenly goes da like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't really know which works best, really, film or video for uh, location work. I, I think film it, it does give it a more kind of polished sort of look. I think we've. Uh, but, you know, outside broadcast, I think it, it, they, they were just uh, following the trends of the time because it would be, you know, commonplace to film that. And they even did some outside broadcast work in the 70s with uh, stories like Robot and uh, some Tyrone Experiment, Seeds of Doom. I think they did Stones of Blood, of course. Um, and I think it was probably more... It was probably more production decision because in stories like Robot and Seeds of Doom, you've got a great big uh, monster which you can easily superimpose with CSO. If you use that with film, it would look a lot more wobbly, I think, because there was some kind of jarring problem with the, you know, the technical side of it. 
Um, so I, th I think it was more, you know, a necessity rather than a, you know, style decision, I think. Now, of course, this is the this is the episode, um, the last episode you'd see on TV for quite a long while. At the time, anyway. I mean, these days, 18 months is not a long time. Doctor Who's been off the air for about 18 months, I think, to my knowledge, anyway. But back then, because Doctor Who was, you know, normally commissioned, you know, you get a guaranteed commission every year. You would say, you know, at the end of a, you know, each season, the Doctor Who announcement would say something like, oh, Doctor Who will be back later in the year or early next year, blah, blah, blah. But now it was kind of, it was in limbo, if you like, because Michael Gray, the then controller of the BBC, had made it quite clear that he didn't like Doctor Who. And he even went on Room 101 to actually put Doctor Who in, in Room 101, which he actually, and he got his wish, unfortunately. Which to me is a pretty crappy way of um, running a running a TV station. Really, you you don't run it, you know, because you you know you don't get to pick or choose which shows you have on TV because you either like them or dislike them. You're you're actually catering for a, a whole audience, and I think there was clearly an audience for Doctor Who because it was getting you know it was still getting ratings, you know, good ratings. I think it's got like seven point seven million, which I think is you know a very respectable rating. Um, whether or not that was um, affected by the news that Doctor Who was being taken off the air for 18 months, I don't know. But, um, yeah, like I said, I, I don't think it's the right way to actually be running, you know, it's, you know BBC One. You, you don't really, you, you don't get to pick and choose what, what TV programmes you like and dislike. And, of course, we're seeing that these days a lot with, um, with so many, uh, you know, the acting of BBC Four, for example, and... Um, Various chopping and changing, it's, um, which I which I suspect is down to outside influences, um, which is not really very good. But anyway, um, eighteen months. I I don't really think it should have been taken off the air for eighteen months. I think it was still it was still coming up with um, some perfectly good stories at this point. I think the argument that Doctor Who had got stale. I think it it you know it was not really very flimsy. On the other hand, I think the argument, had it got too violent, well, it didn't help that the news was broken um, not long after part two of The Two Doctors, which is a story um, which features cannibalism. It's got, you know, uh, Shock Eye being, you know, eating a rat and stabbing a, you know, camp old restaurant owner and uh, the Doctor actually poisoning the, the cannibal with cyanide. Um, all of that, you know, I mean, there, there's so much you know nasty stuff going on in that story it's kind of like it gave itself enough rope um I, th I think it shot itself in the foot so i don't think that story had done it any favors um so i think with respect to the violence quotient you know even though i'm all for it um clearly you know it was it was kind of shooting itself in the foot a bit i think at this point but um yeah i, I think maybe this did mark the beginning of the end of of Doctor Who in the in its original run, because after it came back, it never attained that kind of level of popularity that it had done in the sixties or the seventies, or even even the early eighties. It was still, you know, very much respected, you know, as, as a TV program in the early eighties. But I think when it after it came back, it it was just not looked at in the same way, really, which um, which is a shame. It, it never really got 
particularly the viewings. And I think the writing was on the wall for the end of Doctor Who, but it was very much a borrowed time, I think, because it was quite clear, excuse me, that the powers that be in charge of the BBC did not like Doctor Who. So it was a, it was more of a question of if, rather, you know, it's more a question of when rather than if the Doctor Who would be, uh, they, they would stop making Doctor Who. We won't say anything about Doctor in Distress, though, which is just an abomination. So Perry gets to meet the DJ here. I haven't really talked much about this episode, which is not very good. Uh, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, but I, I, I really like the way they're, you know, they're now portrayed DJ as, you know, this kind of sweetly shy everyman, you know, who comes from Liverpool rather than America. You know, she, she says she thinks she believes that she'd met a fellow American. And it's, it, I, I like the way Alexi so underplays it. You know, he, uh, you know it's, it's nice to have a character who isn't, you know, constantly lusting after Perry, because I do think Perry is probably the most hapless of the Doctor Who companions. In every story, practically every story she meets, there is some weirdo lusting after her, whether it's Shara's Jack or um, the Borad or Shockeye or even um, Mestor in Between Dilemma. She's, yeah, it's it's probably, I think in, in modern day terms, I think it's probably a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not really quite sure whether you've done... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm um, breaking up my chain of thought there. That picture of Joe Bell. <laughs> <laughs> that picture of Joe Bell that just came up. His, his gurning, grinning mug just suddenly leering up in front of Tassie Beaker. <laughs> that does make me laugh. Um, anyway, yeah, back, back to Perry. I'm not really quite sure whether you really get away with that kind of characterization. And of course, the uh, you know the the verbal abuse that she gets from the doctor. I'm not really <laughs> sorry that picture's come up again. Um, don't look, John. Um, I'm I'm not really sure whether you get away with that these days um, because it's yeah. It I, I think that sort of characterization is it is a product of its time, you know. Um, yeah, I'm. Not sure if Perry was the most successful of companions, but on paper anyway. But I think what makes Perry work, I think, is is Nicola Bryant. I think who always always does a superb job, just like Colin Baker, and she brings a lot a lot of energy and uh, vitality to to the part of Perry. I think, and she plays it she plays it wonderfully well. And when the script offers her great opportunities, like in Mind Warp, I think she really proves what an underrated actress she is. So, um, yeah, a, you know, a real asset to Doctor Who, Nicola Bryant, just like Colin Baker, I think. And I, I think he, this is one of his best performances, actually. I think he, uh, he, he, get, he gets to be Doctor-ish in ways that, you know, previous episodes haven't really kind of afforded him that chance. You know, he's, he gets to, you know, be alien and witty and compassionate and funny and heroic and, you know, all of, all of those things. So it's... Um, yeah, like I say, it's a, it's a shame they got rid of it, you know, uh, for 18 months. Oh, we're coming up to the first extermination here with uh, with Carl uh, and Vogel's rather cap kind of uh, drinking of wine, linked arms. Uh, and I'm going to have a swig of tea. I've got tea this time rather than coffee because it makes me too jittery. 
Uh, here we go. Oh! <laughs> Good screaming. They remade the screaming for this, and um, because they they re-recorded the, the stereo mix, and. Um, I don't think his screaming is quite as good. He sounds more like he's yodeling. But the original one is great. You know, he's a good screaming. I like the kind of, what the look that, you know, that that sort of really upset look that, you know, he gives before he falls dead to the floor. He's like, you know, oh, what could have been a romance between Carl and Vogel? And Carl seems quite upset as well. I think, you know, there is that undercurrent of, uh, you know, something a bit more going on. If you look for it, you know, um, could have been, you know, if, if they survived, they could have been, uh, they could have got happily married at, you know, tranquil repos, I think, probably. And of course, uh, Joe Bell conspiring with uh, Takis and Lilt here, the totally tropical Lilt. It's really good characterization, I think, and that is a big, big problem I have with Monday Doctor Who, you get perfectly good actors who come in and say no more than a couple of lines. And they, you know, they, they're not used. They're, they're just there as kind of like window dressing. You don't really get characters of the calibre that you got in the original run of Doctor Who. You actually feel, feel like you get to know these people. They, you know, you get the impression they have a life outside of this story. Even in stories like, you know, say Pyramids of Mars, where... You know, they're, they're no more than cannon fodder, really, a lot of the characters in that. But you still feel, you believe in them as characters because they get a lot more to do. Whereas now, I think the onus is more on the Doctor and the companions, which I think is a mistake. I mean, I, you know, obviously there are exceptions to the rule. I think, you know, stories like Midnight, I think, is, is a good one for characterization. Silence in the Library, I think, is a good one. Um, but more often than not, you know, the, these characters don't really get much to do. You know, they're just there, you know, just to say a couple of lines and uh, act like kind of puppets for the Doctor, you know, to, to bounce off, really. I like the way that the, the Daleks talked to somebody. It was obviously kind of, um, there was some extra just suddenly shoving that interview before um, Tass and Beaker, who's been lured to the dark side. But it's good. It, it's little little things like that that Graham Parker um, Graham Harper di directs really well with this story. Um, he, he was um, he was a protege of Douglas Canfield, and who was you know who was a master of you know direction. And obviously he learned a, a few tools of the trade with working with Douglas Canfield because he's he's at, his style of direction is very very similar, very pacey, very energetic, very you know very action packed. Excuse me, and um, and I think largely the direction in 1982 it can be quite mixed. I think on a good day you would get someone like Graham Harper, Peter Grimwade, um, uh, who else? Who else was there? Off the top of my head, Peter Grimwade, Graham Harper, Fiona Cumming. I think I think was a great director actually. Really good, Matthew Robinson, of course. Great, uh, great pace on them. Um, uh, Attack of the Cybermen and Resurrection of the Daleks. Um, even lesser, lesser known ones like Paul Joyce and Lover Bickford, I think show a lot of promise, but I think probably 
their their style of direction is probably too filmic and i think it probably caused them to go over budget and um, caused a few upsets in the stu in the recording studio so they i don't think they'll hide again which is a shame um but unfortunately i think you know a couple of other directors just kind of tend to make do i, I don't really think they they get the best out i don't think they get the best out of doctor who which is a shame um you know but I'm, I'm sure i'll talk about those in the future if, if i do any more podcasts I, I don't know we'll see but, i mean this is great handheld camera work you know you, it, handheld camera work i think just gives it that much more kind of grit to a story i, I think it, you know it it makes a lot of difference and i think there's actually more handheld camera work than you um than you might think in the original one of doctor who because you know i mean that's you know kind of like part of the course these days I mean, here, you know, apparently it was, I think it was more kind of by luck and judgment because they were overrunning and it was taking too much time to set up the studio camera. So they literally got a portable handheld camera, filmed that and managed to save a lot of time. But the the outcome of that is it just adds that extra little bit of pace, a little bit of fluidity to, to the proceedings. And it works really, really well. Wonderful direction by Graham Harper. Oh, here we go. Tassabika declaring her love for Joe Bell, and he comes up with. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, uh, and um, yeah, re real need enough of stuff about him, you know, sort of fantasizing about the dead. It's, uh, you know, won't even go there. It's, it's yeah, Eric Saber really pushing the boundaries of tea time TV. Yeah. <laughs> You'd rather run away with his own mum. God, he's mean, isn't he? You know, it's uh again I'm I'm not really quite sure where, whether you get away with this sort of thing. I think Monday audiences might think it's just taking it a little bit too far. And even when you know she calls him fat in a minute and bald. I, I should use that myself, you know, my figure is the height of fashion. <laughs> and again, you know, the handheld camera work for this, it's, um, it's a lot of, it, it, it makes Joe Bell's death scene seem much more urgent, even though she doesn't actually press down on the plunger. Um, Roger Lim's music there, I, I love that kind of thing. sort of noise that he does it's a wonderful little touch and also the wig falling off here the toupee it's kind of like the ultimate insult and he dies all alone and unloved and humiliated really um and poor old tassin beaker's about to come a cropper now as she gets exterminated by the daleks oh there she goes well she does a funny thing with her arm you know she sort of looks like she sort of uh doing that thing in the chorus line, you know, you know when they do at the end of the song, they go, oh, and they sort of wave their arms about, she looks like she's doing that. Uh, here's the sock music instead of uh, instead of Jimi Hendrix. Um, it's just a generic watching, I think, they use. But if you're watching it on Blu-ray and you do have Jimi Hendrix, then, uh, then uh, good for you. Now, this was the cliffhanger for um, part three. Where, where the doctor says, uh, you're in terrible danger. <clears throat> All right, you're in great danger. I, I haven't seen this. Uh, 
that year actually. I don't I don't know. Um I always think they should do a Doctor Who repeat season, I think, on terrestrial TV. But unfortunately, again, I think the the, the modern world has killed any idea of that. I think it's just destroyed traditional repeat seasons as we know it, you know. Um and it goes a little bit back to what I was saying in uh, the podcast in the Generation Game about archive TV. I mean, how it's it's just sitting there gathering dust because a lot of it is, you know, it's all about streaming these days, all about uh, downloads and, you know, the sheer amount of channels that we've got. Um, it's, it's all about quantity rather than quality. And unfortunately, I think, you know, repeat seasons like they used to have, you know, like in the early 90s, the Five Faces of Doctor Who, Doctor Who and the Monsters. I think all those repeat seasons, I don't think you get that anymore, which is a real shame. It, it seems like too much hard work for, um, you know, like the BBC to actually come up with a, a good selection of Doctor Who repeats from the classic era. Well, you know, both the classic album. You know, if they could do like a, you know, good run up to the 60th anniversary with, a, you know, 13 or however many bloody faces there are these days. I, I don't know, I've lost count. Of, of Doctor Who, you know, I, I think it, I personally think it would go down really well. But of course, channel, you know, an ideal channel for that would have been BBC Four. But of course, that's uh, um, that's on the way out. So I, I don't think that would happen. But of course, you know, like I said, all Doctor Who these days is readily available and accessible at the press of a button. So you you wouldn't get. But I, I do miss those repeat seasons. Because in those days, you know, not all the videos, not all the stories were available on video. And, um, you know, they, they weren't, uh, you know, they, they weren't around on DVD. We are copying a bit from uh, the previous story here, Time Ash with the bogus Stavros. <laughs> <laughs> it does make me laugh when he says, remove that object. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it's it's like the, uh, it's like Time Lash when the, the Doctor thinks he's killed a ball round and of course he has killed the ball He's just killed his, uh, his dupe. Um, and the, the real, the real devil comes back in a minute. But this is a good effect, actually. Terry Malloy spinning around for all he's worth. It's a good video effects scene, actually. A little bit like the um, the regeneration for Peter Davison's Doctor, actually, that kind of superimposed video effect of Davos imploding. Not that Peter Davison's Doctor imploded. Yeah, here he is. He's the real Davros. See the Daleks are better shots in the you know in the original stories, whereas these days they they can't even fly for Toffee. I mean they're useless. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling, old. <laughs> yeah, all, all this mythology about how Daleks can't fly, but you know, I mean, technically Davos can in uh, in Revelation of Daleks. So, you know, move over Remembrance of the Daleks 
revelation of the Daleks takes the crown for flying Daleks. And I think this one coming up as well, I think it's meant to, I think you're meant to think that it's, um, that it's flying, the one that um, exterminates Natasha and Grigory. They use what, what was called a Sevens model Dalek. And I think, from what I remember, you could actually win one in, uh, in Doctor Who magazine. God, the body count is just going up and up here. Yeah, I used to buy Doctor Who magazine on a regular basis. But I haven't bought it in a long, long time. Just, uh, just the money these days. It's, I think it's about, I'm, I'm not sure how much it costs, but it's, uh, it's a huge amount for stuff that you could easily read online with. Excuse me, just slipping my tea. Well, the DJ is, uh, I mean, what, what a great concept, using rock and roll to actually uh, kill your enemies. I mean, that is a great idea. I mean, you could use, um, you could use music, you know, that is, you could use a, a laser beam of really awful music that you don't like, you know, like, a, you know, a blast of Sheeran to bore you to death, or... A blast of Oasis to instantly disintegrate you, you know, that'd be, uh, that'd be an ideal weapon, wouldn't it? You know, somebody should really come up with that and uh, market it. That'd be a great tool. Car about to meet her maker in a very, a very ironic way, of course, you know. <clears throat> Yeah, Eleanor Braun is, is a you know great find for Doctor Who. She was originally in um, City of Death, but merely as a cameo with John Cleese when she uh, played the art gallery visitor in Part Four of City of Death. But yeah, she's given more to do, and she's yeah she's great as Cara. Re really, uh, really good performance. A bin. <clears throat> in <laughs> oh dear yeah I'm, I'm surprised White House didn't complain about this you know easily stabbing you know the, you know I thought she would have thought that you know kids would have copied out something and uh, yeah here's the final battle between the, the DJ and the Daleks and uh, unfortunately it does not bode well for the DJ <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how many, um, you know, how many radio DJs. I've, I haven't heard the radio uh, in a long time. I, I don't like having my music chosen for me. More often than not, they uh, choose a whole lot of crap anyway. But um, I'm not sure how many uh, DJ broadcasts would go like this. Oh, poor old DJ. I mean, why does he just stand in front of a Dalek? Why doesn't he just... Can he not even approach him? <laughs> That's a nice moment. I, I like the I like the doctor's reaction to that. They actually had um, there's a, there's a deleted scene I think with um, Perry rushing over to the DJ's corpse and, uh, and sobbing a little bit. I think they cut that out for uh, timing reasons. I don't I don't know if they do on the Blu-ray. They do like an extended version 
Um, I'm, I'm not really sure if they, you know, if they do that these days with uh, the deleted footage that they've got. Because I think I think there was about five minutes worth of the may, maybe less. I don't I don't know deleted scenes. I, I, don't, I don't know if they do like extended versions, like they did with the uh, the Curse of Fenric and Battlefield. It's good that you know at least Colin Baker's Doctor actually gets to meet Daleks and Davos, and he he holds his own really well against uh, against you know Davos. It's it's a good confrontation. Each of the original Doctors, um, you know, they 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 hold their own against that possibly well. And I think in in the Monday one, I think Peter Capaldi, uh, he he gets a really good scene with uh, with Davos in um, uh, what's it called, Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, I think. Even if the story itself is dull, um, he he gets some good material in that, and he he acts it really well. Um, David Tennant's Doctor Less So. It's just, you know, the usual flippancy and gurning and uh, teeth grinding and shouting. Um, but yeah, C Colin's Doctor does really well, really well here. It's, um, you know, he's it's, it's nice to see his Doctor show a little bit of concern, a little bit of empathy rather than, you know, all these Bondian one-liners and smug jokes. It's a good face-off, and I think I think it proves why he, he really should have stayed in the role a lot longer. I think it's a hu hugely uh, uh, hugely unfair treatment that he got. And I, I think it's a, a great shame that they keep doing these polls, you know, with uh, your favourite Doctor, because it's you know none of it matters really. It's um. You know, at the end of the day, it's ephemera. Um, every, you know, everybody is their own favourite doctor, and you can't really kind of poll them like that. Um, you know, each doctor has something that they bring to the, the table. Um, whether or not it include Jodie's doctrine, that I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think we'll go there. I, mean, uh, I, I don't want to get. Uh, I don't want to get. You know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get attacked, but um, it's, it's just not for me, I'm afraid. Sorry. Anyway, moving swiftly on to... I, I really like this. Uh... <laughs> yes, this, uh, this, um, this scheme that has earned Davros greater claim, turning, um, turning people into food and the, the idea that um, people are eating their own relatives. About <laughs> consumer resistance. <laughs> it's, it's just great, great one-liners. Ah, uh, you know, that's another thing that annoys me about humour in Doctor Who between the two eras. I think in the classic run, I think they get the, the judgment perfectly, but I think in the modern-day Doctor Who, I think there's it's like every alternate line has to be a wisecrack or a punchline. And people don't talk like that in real life. And to be fair, it's not just like that in Doctor Who, it's other dramas that I've seen before. You get characters, you know, even soap operas, you come up with characters, you come up with all these 
really odd lines. You know, this really stilted way of talking, like everything has to be a joke. Um, one of my pet hates is when people say showtime, because people don't actually talk like that in real life. You know, they go, showtime. You know, people don't say bloody showtime in real life, do they? Or if they do, they get a clout around the lug hole, wouldn't they? Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, 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 I don't like that. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's not exclusive to Doctor Who by any means. You know, I think all modern day dramas do it. Um, and unfortunately, that's, that's just, you know, modern day programmers' idea of good dialogue. Oh. There goes Bostock, and there goes Davison's fingers. <clears throat> He's perfectly armless now. Yeah, it's, it's probably not something that you get away with uh, these days, you know, blowing uh, somebody's hand off it before 6 o'clock p.m., I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, you know, maybe on some show. Actually, mate, you know, on ITV4, ITV3, they do, you know, they do have uh, dramas, you know, repeats of dramas when, in the days when uh, they were a little bit less afraid to uh, avoid gruesome moments like that. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really quite sure what the, the deal is with the Dalek voices in this. They're a little bit, little bit odd, but uh, I think it's Roy Skelton and Royce Mills, and I think for that, uh, for that bit, I think they, um, they were, they were having a joke in the studio to see who could, uh, who could go the most over the top with, uh, you know, their exterminate chance. How did you find me? <laughs> a little bit like a sulky kid isn't he Daros when you know he um the Daleks inform him that he'll be taken back to Scrum and he goes no <laughs> lucky to be alive at the end of a Saywood bloodbath story and yeah the body count is leaving he's still yet to ride actually You would have thought that the, the Daleks would actually bother to double check whether um, the Doctor's regenerated again. You would have thought they've got some sort of a inbuilt, you know, with the the amount of technology at their, you know, at their sucker arms. You know, you would have thought they could have, um, you know, look, you know, devised the internet long before you know it was uh, it was introduced. And look him up. By the way, the Doctor holds out his hands and travels. <laughs> Sorry, uh, too much, too much laughing. I should really make this. I, I should get like a laugh jar or something. Poor little Seely having to hop there. <laughs> Davos still ranting and raving. I, I, I think it's a shame they couldn't bring Michael Wisher back, but you know, unfortunately. That's a, you know, lack of availability for you and the logistics of actually arranging a production, you know. 
Um, but but I th- like I said, I think Terry Malloy is he's very good here, and I, th- I think he gives a, his best performance in this story. Actually, I think it's great. So, very you know we, we're coming into the um, the end game of uh, Revelation of Daleks. Here. Was I upset as a as a how old was I? Uh, ten yeah, ten years older would it? Yeah, ten and a half would have been when this was broadcast. And I think I was a bit miffed that Doctor Who would be off the air for 18 months. I think, well, what on earth is going to replace it? Um, I think they had the tripods. I'm not really quite sure that I got the tripods quite as much. Um, they, I think they broadcast that in the autumn. I, I seem to remember it was around 1985. Off the top of my head, I can't remember. Um, but that was about it. And science fiction, I think, was in quite short supply. They had a few... Um, Star Trek repeats, which um, which I was happy with. I, you know, I enjoyed the original one of Star Trek, but I think it was really Doctor Who that I wanted to see back. Um, and yeah, I, I was I was a bit miffed, I think, you know, because um, it it was off the air for so long. And the word around the campfire is that the original plan was to exit for good, but I think it was only uh, um, last minute intervention by J and T that managed to get a reprieve for four years. And of course, you know, I, I think the money by then was being invested into EastEnders, which had begun a month before this. It was kind of like Michael Grade's new pet project, I suppose. Uh, I never, never liked EastEnders. It was just rather old tosh, really, wasn't it? It's um, just... I, I, I can't believe that it's actually still limping around today. I mean, if you know, if they can axe neighbours, then, uh, I mean, EastEnders on even that could be on borrowed time because it's it's still as ludicrous as it ever was and you know these ridiculous characters you know but who knows but um but i suppose doctor who have a last laugh in the end because it's uh you know it came back in 2005 and no matter what you know what i say about it you know it did come back to be hugely popular again um well certainly in uh in its first few years, anyway, I'm not sure whether it's uh, quite as popular these days. But I, th- I think there is there is still an interest there. I think you know, um, especially with uh, the uh, the reports of the um, the the new the new Doctor Who stories that are being filmed. As I recall, it's in June 2022. So yeah, he did have a last laugh, really. And here goes Orsini. Blowing himself into oblivion there. Good, uh, good special effect there. Um, I'm, I'm watching the the, uh, the original effects actually. So you've got the corn-tailed, purpley turquoise blur out of the scene in Boston there, rather than the uh, the one day one where um, you can see his finger turn skeletal when he presses the button and he just sort of vanishes in a blaze of fiery orange light. A little bit like the um, the regeneration energy they use for the the doctor these days. Maybe he regenerate. Maybe he's a secret time lord. I don't know. <clears throat> he can survive the, uh, you know, the ordeal of being blown to Kingdom Come. Maybe he can reassemble himself. I don't know.
<laughs> cameraman work. No, actually, no, it's not the cameraman shaking. I think they did it electronically for the uh, for the final bit, for the explosions. Good explosion. Good model work, actually. I haven't said anything about the model work. It's uh, it's very good, but it's it's not a great deal in this. But what they do is uh, is uh, is excellent. So many Doctor Who fans were weeping into their scarves at this point, as the eighteen-month break was about to take its toll. I was probably one of them. You know, I, well, I wouldn't say weeping, but um, yeah, the end of an era in many ways. Um, but taken on its own, I mean, now that, you know, now the Doctor Who, you know, it, it lived again to fight another day. Um, I think taken on its own, I think Revelation of the Daleks is a, it's a cracker, isn't it? A real brilliant, you know, wonderful story. And of course, um, he would have taken Perry to Blackpool if, uh, if that pesky freeze frame hadn't happened. Damn you, Michael Grade. Damn you. <laughs> I I read that he was actually on the Blu-ray extras being interviewed. Um, yeah, quite how he's going to get out of that one. I don't, well, I mean, I've seen him in interviews and he's just incredibly smug. And there's a great tale actually in Peter Davison's autobiography when he sat next to Michael Grave on the plane, and Grave didn't say he didn't say a word to him apart from small talk, which um, I think that says much more about him than uh, you know. Peter Davison. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Oh, should I buy a Blu-ray player? Well, no. Well, I couldn't even if I wanted to because I don't have any money in the bank. So. But, um, yeah, um, that was Revelation of the Daleks, anyway. Uh, excellent story. Probably my favourite of the Colin, Baker's, the Colin Baker years. And thank you again for tuning in to Perpetual Outsider. Uh, hope to be with you again soon. But in the meantime, this is me, John Bensalia, signing off. Goodbye for now.